Welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. In this edition of our podcast, we're bringing you Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. He came to the Academy this April to lend some insight into the long and complex history of this pervasive disease. He also told us about the challenges of bringing such a story to life. Thank you so much. Um, I thought I would, instead of the usual practice of telling you about the book per se, I thought I would take you behind the curtains a little bit and talk about how the book got written. Um, And rather than talking about content first, I thought I would talk about process. Um, When I first began to ponder uh, the question of writing this book, there was an enormous amount of resistance, not only from people I I had posed the idea to, but in general, the general response was, no one's going to read a book about cancer. It's going to be an unreadable book, not only for the content, but also for the structural challenges. So here's a history that spans 4,000 years in which there's not one character, hundreds of characters coming in and out. It goes through the complexities, I think, of epidemiology, the complexities of literature um, on one hand, the complexities of genes, genetics, mutational analysis, and to push all of this into a book which ended up being 600-odd pages was an enormous challenge. And in the middle of all of this, the central challenge was the narrative challenge. How do you put narrative structure onto this? While I was pondering all of this, I had a very important conversation with my editor, Nan Graham. And I was driving back home after that conversation, and I realized that in the end, if you abstract away everything about medicine, um, if you abstract away the CAT scan and the MRIs and the big hospital and the multi-million dollar industry that sustains the practice of medicine, in the end, medicine is a transaction that occurs between one doctor sitting alone in a room and a patient. And of course, the connection is story. As a physician, the medical interaction, I think, begins with storytelling. And so we turn to the story of cancer. In a papyrus dating to 2500 BC, an ancient doctor offers a glimpse into what may have been the first recorded case of breast cancer, though there is no word for it yet. Under therapy, he writes, there is none. In 440 BC, Herodotus tells us of a Persian queen named Atossa and describes an ulcer on her breast. Meanwhile, just 40 years earlier, Hippocrates would have given the disease a name, karkinos, after the Greek word for crab. Skipping ahead to the late 19th century, an American surgeon named William Halstead pioneers radical surgeries to combat cancer. And in the 1940s, a pathologist named Sidney Farber begins the first chemotherapy trials in Boston. Mukherjee's biography of cancer tells the tales of the central players in the story of this insidious disease, from ancient times to the present. And perhaps few people are as central to the story as Farber. Sidney Farber was a pathologist. He was uh, a so-called doctor of the dead. And I've actually been to the space uh, underneath the uh, children's hospital where Farber worked um, as a pathologist, looking at cells, looking at tissues, diagnosing illness. But Farber had a particular drive. He was interested in also converting this knowledge that he was getting into the treatment of patients. And in the universe of cancer, Farber was particularly interested in childhood lymphoblastic leukemia. Leukemia being a systemic disease, it's a blood cancer, so it goes all over the body, so it couldn't be treated surgically. So Farber began to imagine or fantasize about the possibility of medicines 
chemicals that would enter your body and specifically kill leukemic cells, cancer cells, and spare normal cells. And Farber got an important clue from a British woman half a world away. Working in India, Lucy Wills found that severely malnourished pregnant women were missing a nutrient in their system that caused anemia. That nutrient turned out to be folic acid. Now, Farber knew about this work, and he began to have what I think is a very important thought, which is a counter-thought, that if a deficiency of folic acid can block the growth of blood because these women didn't have normal blood because they were deficient in folate, he began to wonder, could you use an antifolate to block the growth of a blood cancer? But unfortunately, he didn't have such a drug. There was one person who had actually invented such a drug, and he was um, an Indian chemist. Yelapragda Subarao. Yella for short. So Yella sent his antifolates to Farber. And Farber he began to inject these antifolates into children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and he began to find these flickering remissions, seven-week remissions, 12-week remissions, 15-week remissions. And for Farber, that was a kind of an electrical moment. But despite this early success, the problem was that all of the children Farber treated with antifolates eventually relapsed and died. I had promised myself, as I told you, I promised myself that I would write this book by recounting the history of patients. So where was that first cohort of children? Where was that child? So Mukherjee wrote letters, and he asked around in the Boston medical community if anyone knew about those children, those first recipients of Farber's chemotherapies. And there was nothing, no response whatsoever. It was in a much less likely place than Boston that he found that first child. 6,000 miles away in Delhi, India, Mukherjee met with Yella Subarao's friend and biographer. And this man says to me, oh, by the way, I have the, the roster of all these patients that Sidney Farber was taking care of in Boston. Are you interested in this roster of leukemia patients, these children? So here I was, 6,000 miles away from Boston. <laughs> and the man, he handed me this roster, and he handed me a picture, a series of cuttings from newspapers. And here was that one of the children. Robert, Robert Sandler. Sandler. Um, and I dedicated the book to Robert Sandler. And so the book opens with to Robert Sandler, 1945 to 1948, and to those who came before and after him. And I think the most, the nicest praise that I received about this book came from uh, Helen, who's still alive. Helen Sandler. That would be Robert Sandler's mother. And the Sandlers are Jewish. And when Robert had died, Farber, being a pathologist, had begged Helen to allow him to autopsy Robert. And Helen had said, no, and this is a violation of the body. The child has suffered enough. I'm not going to allow you to open my child's body up again. And Farber had begged and said, you know, this is the only way. This is the first child that had a real remission. This is the only way we'll learn anything about this for the future of acute lymphoid leukemia. And very reluctantly, Helen had said yes, but she said the decision had haunted her for the rest of her life. And she said, as I said, the nicest thing that anyone said to me about this book is that having the book dedicated to Robert brought that history for her to a close. It was as if it was a long, open book for her and allowed her to bring it to a close. I'm thankful for that. But back to Farber. These remissions in Boston were obviously very significant for Farber, and he became interested, therefore, in launching a national platform by which this disease could come out of its whispered state and become part of a national conversation. There's an episode I recount in the book of this uh, lady, Fanny Rosenau, um, who calls up the New York Times. Uh, she was a survivor of breast cancer, and she said, I'd like to print an advertisement for a survivor's group of women with breast cancer. There was a long pause on the line, 
And then finally, the society editor gets on the phone and says, you know, Ms. Rosenau, we can't print the word breast and cancer in the New York Times. Uh, what if we said this was a group for women with diseases of the chest wall? So Farber began to collaborate with a woman named Mary Lasker. Lasker was a Manhattan socialite, but she decided to gear her resources and energy toward cancer. Mary Lasker was a very unusual woman for her time, um, an entrepreneur, phenomenally successful. And she, she launched this amazing process by which she began to campaign with Farber. Farber provided her with a kind of scientific legitimacy to, to launch a national platform. Mary and Farber had this incredible capacity to bring people together. Uh, she was a lobbyist, uh, I say in the book, she was a professional lobbyist in the same sense that one can be a professional basketball player. She brought a kind of athleticism, a kind of dedication, but most importantly, a discipline to this kind of lobbying, um, which was really beyond and above her time. Especially after the death of her own husband from cancer, Mary Lasker sought to step up her campaign against the disease to a new level. In 1971, the Laskerites, as her supporters were known, waged an all-out war on cancer, calling for its eradication by America's 200th birthday, merely five years away. Put yourself in that moment, uh, 1970 and 71, in which all of a sudden Americans have landed, successfully landed a rocket on the moon, have clearly emerged as the victors of a corrosive war in Europe, and they have come up with a mechanism to burst the atom bomb. So... This kind of idea, uh, NASA for cancer, the, the atom bomb, the Manhattan Project for cancer, is very much part of this 1970s optimism. And this was printed in every major newspaper, but prominently the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, Mr. Nixon, you can cure cancer. Um, and underneath there's a subtext which says, why don't we try to cure cancer by America's 200th birthday? What a wonderful birthday present that would be. Well. 200th birthday has come and gone, and uh, certainly we're not there yet, but this was the kind of unbelievable optimism and the hubris uh, that came. And as Bruce Chabner, who I actually met again today, um, said something wonderful. He said, you know, to, to launch a war on cancer in 1971 was like trying to launch a moon rocket without knowing Newton's laws. Uh, the Laskerites' magnificent hopes were clearly dashed. Cancer wasn't eradicated by America's 200th birthday. In fact, we're still struggling with it today. But there has certainly been progress. From ancient times, when doctors offered only prayer as the solution, to 19th century radical surgeries, to ever-advancing chemotherapies, to the promise that genetics may someday unlock the secrets of this malignant disease, cancer treatment and care has made big advances. But to truly envision the evolution of cancer medicine, Dr. Mukherjee asked the audience to follow him on a thought experiment he uses at the end of the book. To envision what such a victory against cancer might look like, permit a thought experiment. Recall Atosa, the Persian queen with breast cancer in 500 BC. Imagine her traveling through time, appearing and reappearing in one age after the next. She is cancerous Dorian Gray. As she moves through the arc of history, her tumor, frozen in stage and behavior, remains the same. First, pitch Atosa backward in time to Imhotep's clinic in Egypt in 2500 BC. Imhotep has a name for her illness, a hieroglyph that we cannot pronounce. He provides a diagnosis, but then he writes, there is no treatment, humbly closing the case. In 500 BC, in her own court, Atosa self-prescribes the most primitive form of a mastectomy, which is performed by her Greek slave. 200 years later, in Thras, Hippocrates identifies her tumor as Carcinos, thus giving her illness a name that will ring through its future. Claudius Galen, in 168 AD, hypothesizes the universal cure, systemic overdose of black bile, trapped melancholia boiling out as a tumor.
A thousand years flash by. Etosa's entrapped black bile is purged from her body, yet the tumor keeps growing, relapsing, invading, and metastasizing. Medieval surgeons understand little about Etosa's disease, but they chisel away at her cancer with knives and scalpels. Some offer, and these are again brought out from the archives, frog's blood, lead plates, goat dung, holy water, cra crab paste, caustic chemicals as treatments. In 1778, in John Hunter's clinic in London, her cancer is assigned a stage, early localized breast cancer or late advanced invasive cancer. So you begin to now see that the, the subdivision of cancer as a highly heterogeneous disease, even breast cancer, is being divided up in 1770s. For the former, Hunter rec recommends a local operation, thus he launches the history of, of surgery. But for the latter, he recommends remote sympathy. When Atosa re-emerges re in the 19th century, she encounters a new world of surgery. In William Halstead's Baltimore Clinic in 1890, Atosa's breast cancer is treated with the most bold and most definitive therapy thus far, a radical mastectomy with large excision of the tumor and removal of the deep chest muscles and lymph nodes under the armpit and the collarbone. As I write about in the book, it takes 90 years and about 500,000 cases to disprove that this aggressive form of breast surgery actually has no real benefit in patients. In the early 20th century, radiation oncologists tried to obliterate the tumor using local x-rays. By the 1950s, yet another generation of surgeons learned to combine the two strategies, although now tempered by moderation. Atosis cancer is treated locally with a simple mastectomy or a lumpectomy followed by radiation. Each of these pieces is the result of an unbelievable amount of work, an unbelievable amount of clinical trials that allowed hundreds of th thousands of women to actually get the benefit of these. In the 1970s, new therapeutic strategies emerged. Atosa surgery is followed by adjuvant combination chemotherapy to diminish the chance of a relapse. Her tumor tests positive for the estrogen receptor, and so tamoxifen is added to prevent a relapse. In 1986, her tumor is further discovered to be HER2 positive. So in addition to surgery, radiation, adjuvant chemotherapy, and tamoxifen, she's treated with targeted therapy. It is impossible to enumerate the precise impact of these interventions on Atosa's survival. The shifting landscape of trials does not allow a direct comparison between Atosa's fate in 500 BC and her fate in 1989. But surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, hormonal therapy, and targeted therapy have likely added anywhere between 17 and 30 years to her survival. Diagnosed at 40, Atosa can be reasonably expected to celebrate her 60th birthday. This, indubitably, is progress. But before we become too dazzled by Atosa's survival, it's worthwhile putting into perspective. Give Atosa metastatic pancreatic cancer in 500 BC, and her prognosis is unlikely to change by more than a few months over 2,500 years. Even breast cancer shows a marked heterogeneity in outcome. If Atossa's tumor is metastasized or is estrogen receptor negative, HER2 negative, and unresponsive to standard chemotherapy, then her chances of survival will have barely changed since the time of Hunter's Clinic in London. Give Atossa chronic myelogenous leukemia or Hodgkin's disease, in contrast, and her lifespan may have increased by 30 or 40 years at least. Part of the unpredictability of the trajectory of cancer in the future is that we don't know the biological basis for this heterogeneity. We cannot yet fathom, for instance, what makes pancreatic cancer or gallbladder cancer so markedly different from CML or Tosas breast cancer. We're beginning to fathom that somewhat. What is certain, however, is that even the knowledge of cancer's biology is unlikely to eradicate cancer fully from our lives. The reason is that the very genes that unleash cancer are genes that play a very functional, very important role in the development of organisms in our growth. Uh, these genes are not extraneous to us, they're part of our bodies. As Richard Dole suggests, and as Atossa epitomizes, we might as well focus on prolonging life rather than eliminating death. This war on cancer, to go back to Mary Lasker, may best be won by redefining what victory is.
For more on the history of cancer, read the book. The Emperor of All Maladies from Scribner Press is available in most major bookstores, and of course, online. Meanwhile, you can join the New York Academy of Sciences Saturday, May 14th for a Breast Cancer Education Day, co-sponsored by the Farber Center for Radiation Oncology. Check it out online at www.scienceandthecity.org. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we rely on your continued support to keep bringing you this podcast, along with all of our speaker series and other regular programming. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your comments, critiques, and suggestions to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you.